Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with MLB Network's Harold Reynolds. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. Today in the program, we've got a two-time All-Star, three-time Gold Glove winner, the face of MLB Network, and he's a former teammate of mine. We go we go back a long way. Harold Reynolds, Harry, welcome to the program. My man, Brett Boone. What's happening, brother? <laughs> not much, not much. Thanks for coming on, man. Uh, yeah. Let's go back to the beginning. Born in Eugene, Oregon. I was there a yeah. summer with dad when he was in the minor leagues, but uh, you grew up in Oregon. I want to hear all about your childhood. I know you're, you're a football, basketball, and baseball player, but let me, let me hear it from you. Well, born in Eugene, like you talked about, but um, we moved to Corvallis when I was about three or four, so home of the Oregon State Beavers, but my oldest brother, Don, went to Oregon first, so I became a Duck fan when I was a kid because I spent most of my time on weekends down at University of Oregon, and he played football and baseball there, so I was a ball boy for both those sports. So that was kind of it. But growing up in a college town, man, it was the greatest thing ever. You know, we grew up in a time where uh, the UCLA teams would come through with John Wooden. Uh, We had, you name it, football, basketball, baseball. And we lived right across the street from the Coliseum at Oregon State. So we would hang out there constantly on campus and Booney, you'll get this one. I'll let, I'll take a breath and let you talk. But Dick Fosbury taught me how to high jump when I was a kid, the Fosbury flop. And here's the, here's the truth of the story is this college coach would not let him do the flop. He'd have to do what they used to call the Western roll. And so since I lived on campus, basically, I would always be the kid running around. I'm like, eight or nine years old and I'm, I'm putting the bar back up for him while he's practicing his flop after all the, everybody's gone like four thirty, five o'clock in the, in the early evening. And I'd be putting the bar back up for him and he'd be teaching me how to jump. And so a little bit later, the Olympics come around and I'm like, that's the guy right there. That's my friend, Dick Fosbury. And everybody's like, what? <laughs> so, yeah. So he told that story when I got inducted into the Oregon Sports Hall of Fame. And I was like, finally, people believe me. So it was pretty cool. Well, I'll tell you, there's, there's not, you know, we all grow up and we have our things we like to do. Not too many people are high jumpers. That's, that's a pretty unique niche for you, for you growing up. Um, you played football, basketball. I know you're a hoopster. Well, Harry, I've been around. I know you can do it all. And so, so the high jump, that doesn't, that doesn't phase <laughs> me. I believe, I believe it. But, you know, and obviously you end up pursuing a baseball career. But what were you best at as a kid? As a kid, I was best in basketball. I mean, I was, uh, yeah, I was a really good basketball player because we spent so much time in the gym over there. And all those guys uh, really taught us how to play. So that was it. And actually, Ralph Miller was the basketball coach at Oregon State when I got like into right before high school, middle school, right into high school. He became the head coach at Oregon State. And his daughter, Shannon, actually ended up being in my uh, class ahead of me. So we went to school uh, pretty much full time. But we would 
all the kids in town would go over and Ralph let us shoot around on the side rim. So they had the main floor and then you had like eight hoops around the outskirts of it. And he used to let us go in there and shoot around. He had one rule. If you bounced the ball when he was talking, you got kicked out of the gym and you got chewed out as a, as part of it. And so you might be in the middle of the shot and that ball's up and it hits off the rim and, and Ralph blows his whistle, starts yelling. You better dive and catch that ball. Make sure it doesn't bounce. And that was, that was his big rule for all the kids that were hanging out there. But uh, yeah, it was fun. So basketball was my, my, my sport when I was a kid. So you went to Corvallis high school and yes, uh, did you, ha- did you have any, did you have any uh, aspirations beyond high school as far as following the basketball dream? Well, yeah, actually my, my uh, eighth grade year before my freshman year in high school, our high school basketball coach had sent me up to uh, university of Washington, the Husky hoop camp. Marv Harshman was the head coach then. And he sent me up to camp and in that camp was John Stockton and Ryan Sandberg. And obviously when you're in eighth grade, you don't know these guys are going to go on to greatness. And I was the MVP of the tournament. So I always tell them when I see them, guys, I was the best hoopster of the group. And uh, so that's kind of funny. At that time, I was the MVP of that tournament. So, so yeah, I had aspirations thinking I was going to go on and play basketball. But my best friend in high school, his dad, Jack Riley, his name is Mickey Riley. His dad, Jack, was the head baseball coach at Oregon State. And so, I mean, I lived at their house. And Jack would give us the keys. And we could go hit in the cages, and we used to play all kinds of games. And and before you know it, I just fell in love with 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 baseball. And I was recruited highly in football as well. But baseball just, you know, when you fall in love with that game, it's hard to get get past it. And that was kind of me as a kid. So in '79, you get drafted in the sixth round by the Padres. But you yeah. end up, and this is where it gets interesting. You know, I'm going to have to yeah, have you uh, explain it to the listeners man. out there. But you go to your plan is to go to San Diego State. You you eventually end up going to Kenyatta Junior College. Yeah, yeah. So give well, give me how did that happen? <laughs> well, I always wanted to go to USC and play for Rod Dato. That was like the dream, right? But my I missed brother, him by a year, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So, so oh, you did, huh? That would have been great. Play. I, yeah, hey, I had Gillespie. Uh, hey, Dato's hey, last Tiger. year was the day before I went, or the year before I went. Wow, that's too bad. Yeah, I used to love uh, Rod Dato. Um, my older brothers, Don and Larry. Uh, Don, obviously, I talked about went to University of Oregon. He played football and baseball there. And in the summer, they played up in Fairbanks in Alaska. And Jim Dietz, the head coach of San Diego State, was the coach in Fairbanks. So Don is four or five years ahead of Larry. And so Don played at Oregon and, and went up there in the summers. He ended up playing pro baseball, played in the big leagues with the Padres. And he raved about Jim Dietz. And every time the Alaska goal panners came to the lower 49, um, I would I would be – um, their ball boy, like in meet them in California and they come through Oregon and on the way to Wichita. And so I'd hang out and got to know coach Deeds. I thought he was the greatest thing ever. And then Larry plays five years after Don up in Fairbanks for Deeds and Larry went to Stanford. 
And both my brothers were are in both their schools Hall of Fame. So Don's in the Oregon Hall of Fame and Larry's in the Stanford Hall of Fame for football and baseball, both of them. Great athletes. And uh, so Larry played up in Fairbanks, and he could not stand Coach Beats. <laughs> so, so then I come along, and I got schools recruiting me, but I never got a call from Rod Dato. I'd have gone there in a heartbeat. Never got a call from, from USC. And I had other schools calling. And San Diego State, you know, I don't, since I was a little kid, I'm like, I'm going to play for Coach Deets. And Larry was like, you don't want to go play for him. He's, he's, he's different than when Don played for him. But I, you know, stubborn younger brother, I'm going to do what I want to do. I went to San Diego State, and it just didn't work out. I just didn't jive with, with Coach Deets at all. So at the semester break, I left. And on that team was Tony Gwynn, Bobby Meacham, Kerwin Danley, the umpire. Uh, you know, they had some, uh, who came next? Mark Grace came, uh, Al Newman, you know, so there was a bunch of talent there, but I just, I, I couldn't hang with Coach D, so I had to get up and go. And that's how I ended up in Kenyatta. And Kenyatta was about 10 minutes from, uh, about 20 minutes or so from Stanford. And Stanford used to play them in the fall all the time. So Larry knew about Kenyatta, and he told me it's be a good place for me to go. So the plan was to go to Kenyatta. And then after a year or two, transferred back to a four-year. But the Mariners drafted me again in the second round, of the, first round of the secondary phase. And so I ended up signing at the end of that summer. So that was it. See you later. Yeah, I was, interest, I was interested in that. I mean, because that secondary phase, we don't have that nowadays. I think it only lasted a couple years. You're the second pick that year in the first round. Um, yeah. It, it's, Neil, it's pretty Neil interesting. Heaton was the first pick. Remember Neil okay. Heaton? Yeah, pitcher. Yeah, he was the first pick. So. I re- I remember that, and yeah, uh, it, it's it's interesting because you know you 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 sign, you go to San Diego State, and you're thinking, well, you're locked in for three years. You know, you're not eligible until after your junior year or you're 21 years old. You end up going right. this route, getting into the draft, and signing in '80 with the Mariners, and. You had an interesting. This is this is what I found interesting about your minor league experiences. You become a switch hitter. Yeah. In the minor leagues, on top of everything else that we go through as minor league players, you know, it's tough enough. All of a sudden, you're going to switch hit. I had Chipper on the on the podcast earlier, switch hitter, and I, I wanted to talk to him about that a little bit, the, the advantages, the disadvantages. Because I'm thinking, man, there's some days where that I just don't want to chase that Johnny Smoltz slider off the plate. <laughs> and I wish I could just flip around to the left side. Well, I'd say this to Chipper, and he'd go, well, yeah, I've never got to face that breaking ball going away from me. But, Booney, you know how tough it is keeping your swing it. I got to work on two swings. So yeah. how was that for you learning it, you know, at the, at the pro level? And what do you think the pros and cons were for you for being a switch hitter? Well, I don't know if I could do it today's game um, because today's game is so much about power. You know, and you know me well enough. My game is a lot about speed. So in that time – it was Vogue. I mean, there was a St. Louis Cardinal team had seven switch hitters. You know, you look at Terry Pendleton, Ozzie Smith, Willie McGee, Tommy Herr, uh, you know, I'll forget other guys. So they're Kendo, you know, so they're on, on, on. And that was around baseball. That was prevalent. I mean, you look at the Kansas City Royals, they had a bunch of guys. And so to learn at, at 19 in the minor leagues, I think guys taught it more. 
you know, I learned how to bunt. I learned how to hit the ball the other way. I learned how to basically swing left-handed, and and that was okay because I wasn't expected to sit back and drive balls out of the ballpark. I think it would have been difficult to learn then, um, I mean, today. So so I, I, I spent a lot of time. I mean, I, my first manager was Bill Plummer, and in A-ball, he threw me extra BP every day, every morning. We're in Wausau, Wisconsin. It's 30 degrees, and Plum's like, you ready to go out and hit? I'm like, are you kidding me? I'll see you at 10 a.m. You know, and we hit every day. And I got to credit him, really, for teaching me how to, you know, to hit, really. I, I, I spent a lot of time hitting, and then eventually it was make contact. Then it became, you know, drive the ball. And as you got a little bit older, you realize everybody's got to catch your grounder. So you better start driving the ball through the infield or on line drives. And I figured it out. So a lot of it was just extra work. And that was it. When the Mariners asked me if they thought I could switch hit, I said, I'd do it in wiffle ball in the backyard. Why not? You know, that was my logic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I remember fooling around with it myself. And little. I mean, I, Harry, I can't eat left-handed. I can't do anything left-handed, so I tried well, that you left-handed. Didn't, you didn't need to. With your thunder – you didn't. Yeah, you yeah, but you know, we all we all think about stuff, especially when we're kids and we're baseball rats, and that's all we want to do is figure something out. Oh, if I could hit left-handed too, I, it it was something. I don't think I don't think I could have done it if I had to. So, uh, no, it's interesting though, you know. And I and I watch guys that switch hit, and I just think, how, how do you do that? I'm so uncoordinated on my other side. But uh, no, that's interesting, and and that's you know, it was a big part of your game. Uh, 83, yeah. you get to the big leagues in Seattle. And, and I also was, you know, kind of, kind of revving up for, for your podcast and thinking, what was it like? I, I had a, you know, I had a pretty good run in Seattle. I played their parts of seven years, but, but I didn't play there in the eighties. What was it like for you? You get there in 83 you start getting consistent playing time in 86. You end up winning a gold glove in, in 87 and 88. But what were those 80s teams in Seattle like, you know, playing in that kingdom? Uh, I didn't come along till a little bit later, but tell me a little bit about those kingdom years in the 80s. Well, you know, we never had a winning season until 86. So we had a ton of talent. I mean, Seattle, I don't need to spend all day documenting it, but, man, we had a lot of people come through there that were talented. We just never put it together. I played for, in my 10 years in Seattle, I had eight managers. That's all you need to know. That's how inconsistent things were in developing, trying to figure out what direction they wanted to go in. Um, finally, we had an owner named Jeff Smallian who came in. He locked up Edgar and a couple guys, and then the organization started to change. But before that, it was, uh, you know, we were developing talent for everybody else, really, is what it, what it seemed like. And... Um, you can look around the league and see that. But uh, I remember one day working out, and I had on a Mariners T-shirt. It's the winter. And I'm going to lift in a, in a gym uh, somewhere in L.A. Fitness or whatever back in that day. And I go in, and some old lady is in there. She's probably in her 80s. <laughs> and she says, oh, you're in the Marines? And I go, no, 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 this is the Mariners. <laughs> It's the Mariners. The Mariners are a pro baseball team in town. She goes, they got a pro baseball team here? I thought that was the Marines, son. I'm like, no, ma'am, it's the Mariners. 
And uh, so that was kind of, that tells you all you need to know. Yeah, it was, the, that town at the time was a big Sonics town. Okay, Harry, I know you've been asked a million time about, times about this, and I know you have interactions with my dad. The bow throw <laughs> in the kingdom, it, it's, it's one of the most amazing things. We all know, we played against Bo, how amazing he is. But this Harold Reynolds, in the 80s, one of the, one of the fastest guys in the game, Going on the pitch, Scott Bradley hits a double into the corner. You get thrown out at the dish. Dad still tells me, because every time I see Harold, I said, you weren't really running on that pitch, were you, Harry? Tell me about that, <laughs> about that night. I, I, man, I tell you, you, you described it perfectly. I mean, not only was I running on the pitch and Scott Bradley hit the ball, but the ball's in front of me. So you know, Booney, when you're running, you're like, calculate in your head who's going to relay, how long will it take. You're an infielder, you know. And by the time this ball hits in the corner and starts to kick up, I'm saying, game over. No way they're getting me. As I'm coming around third, Darnell Cole's the next hitter, and he starts waving, slide, slide. And I'm confused because your dad was the catcher, and he starts walking towards the first baseline where the dugout was. He's walking towards the visitor's dugout. Game over. And all of a sudden, he starts coming back. Now, I'm really confused. Darnell's telling me to slide, and Booney starts walking back. I'm like, there's no way a relay throw is going to get me. What are, what are they doing? And I slide, and next thing you know, he's slapping the tag on me, and I really didn't think he had the ball. I thought he was, like, making me slide. And that was, that was my recollection of the play. And then, obviously, it was out, and I, I find later that, Bo catches the ball and basically just pivoted and threw it all the way in the air to home. And it's one of the greatest throws ever. So as I'm going back to second base, it was the third out of the inning, and I'm going back and Bo's jogging by and he goes, you don't run on Bo. You don't run on Bo. And he's blowing in his finger like a gun smoke, you know, and then he spins it like it's a gun and sticks it in the side of his pants like he's got a holster. And he keeps jogging on by. But, yeah, that was, that was the play, man, the throw, known as the throw. And the ironic part about that was I was playing in Fairbanks in that Alaska league you, you were talking about earlier. Oh, yeah. And it was the end of the summer, and I was coming home, and I, I hadn't seen Dad or, or my mom all summer. So they said, well, why don't you stop in Seattle on your way home? Mom's on the road trip, and you can catch a few games when he was playing with the Royals. I was in the building that night. Holy and, uh, smoke. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's kind of ironic, but uh yeah, what a, I, and I had some some uh interaction with Bo when Bo came down with his hip. I oh man, just some of the things he did on the field. Uh, you know, the pretty I'll, I'll tell you the greatest feat I've ever seen. You know, cuz Bo was always talking trash to me after that all the time. And I'd gone to the Monday night football game where he runs over Bosworth and the other one where mm -hmm. he runs 99 yards against the Seahawks and all that. Went to the locker room, hung out, you know, so Bo and I had actually bonded over his throw. And so, uh, the next year he comes in and he's taking BP and everybody's to stop and watch him take batting practice. And he's taking BP. It's early hitting. And he sees me and he goes, you know, switch hitter, you know, switch hitter. And at about that time, the Bo Nose commercials were out and he actually tried to live that Bo Nose. And he goes, Bo Nose hit, Bo Nose switch hitting. And I go, come on, man, please. And he hops over to the left side. 
And Booney, you played enough games in Seattle. That was your home field. He hit one in the fifth deck left-handed. And I've only seen, I only saw like five balls up there ever. And he drops his bat and walks off and goes, Bo, no switch hitting. <laughs> oh, I, be- I believe it. I mean, he was like a, he was like a Terminator. He was like a, I don't know. He was like a, a superhero. You, you know, you yeah. just walk, like this guy isn't real. He did, he did something to me one time in the minor leagues, Harry. <laughs> he goes, he looks at me. He, he's coming down on his rehab after he injured his hip. And uh, we're playing. I forget. He, he comes down to double A to do his rehab. And I had known Bo because, you know, he played with dad. So he looked at me. Yeah. He goes, Booney, you know, I'm coming to get you. You know, it's a double play situation. Oh, no. I, oh, no. And I said, you know, and he, he's doing it with a wry smile. Uh, we got a lefty on the hill. He goes first move. He's, he's picked off by five feet. He doesn't, you know, I'm thinking, okay, I come in. We're going to get in a rundown. He doesn't get in a rundown. He goes on a dead sprint right at me. I'm standing in front of the bag. Pitcher th- <laughs> or the first baseman throws me the ball. He's out by 15 feet. Okay, I'm getting ready to get in a rundown with him. He doesn't stop. You're out by 15 feet. I'm standing at the bag going, well, he's not. What's he doing here? He's just going to run into the out. You know, he's probably going to run into the out. But he's not acting like he's going to. He's just going to be tagged. He's coming at me like he's going to run through me. Now he gets about 10 feet away and he isn't slowing down. And I'm thinking, you, you can't run the second baseman over at second base. <laughs> so now I get the, t- you know, he's five feet away. He's still in full stride. And I've got the tag down. I mean, he's two steps from it. He's at full steam. I feel like I'm going to get killed. I, I try to get out of the way. He, on a dead stop, he, he stops everything, puts his foot on the base. And, and I miss, I didn't tag him. And the umpire calls him out because the ball beat him by so much. And Bo <laughs> looks at me and starts laughing. And he goes, hey, Booney, you know I was safe, right? I, I didn't know what to say. He was safe. And today on the replay, you know, back then, as long as we put the tag down and, and the ball beat you by, by 10 feet, you're automatically out. Nowadays with the replay, he'd have been standing on second base. It was one of the most humiliating things. And he just started <laughs> laughing and ran off the field. <laughs> oh, gosh. Hey, and after I just, he, after to this day, Rick I remember Dempsey that. Time. Remember when he hit Rick Dempsey in those video clips? After that, yeah. Like oh time, man! Every time he's on second, I'd be like, on first, I'm like, Bo, this ain't football. Oh don't, man! Don't be, don't be pulling that. It's not football. <laughs> yeah, but he had he had that aura about him. You know, he made you think like he, he's really not going to hit me this hard, is he? You know, but you just don't know because there's enough doubt in your mind to kind of protect yourself. But uh, yeah, he what an amazing. So thing. who who uh, who hit you or came in the hardest, Booney, in your career? That's second. Uh, I always prided myself on you couldn't give me. <laughs> yeah. The guys that the guys that came for me were uh Will Clark always was trying to get me. Delgado'd come in, try to get me good, and uh trying to think. <laughs> I don't know, but we you know, as as I got older and as I you know, I was kind of a veteran, I'd always have a little cat and mouse with the guy first say, You can't get me. As long as you come in clean, you come in as hard as you want. But I got to get those legs up in the air. Uh, Kurt Gibson always was trying to get me. Uh, that, that was the name Detroit. right there, man. Yeah, no he doubt. was trying to get me. He was trying to get me. Give me and, uh, and Dan, Disco Dan Gladden, he was the guy. 
The twins. Oh, the twins. Yeah. yeah, twins. Yeah, that's good. Stuff. All right, I want to co- cover 87, Harry. You, you steal 60 bases. And what I found uh, interesting about that, only guy to lead the league in bags in the 80s, other than Ricky Henderson, was, was Harold Reynolds in 1987. And do you think you think it's a lost art in today's game? Back in the, in those days, you know, Rock Reigns and uh, obviously Ricky, uh, Vince Coleman. Um, is it a lost art now? Yeah, I, I think they don't. They're more worried about getting thrown out than what it might do for the guy at the plate. Like I always knew that if I was running, the guy behind me is getting fastballs, and that was that was all the way we were always taught that way. So yeah, I think it's it's. It, I don't know about lost art as much as it is the teams want to calculate everything and think they can predict games out, and that's just a part that they're not going to let players do. And I know now they got a new rule in the minor leagues where, you know, you throw over twice and you can't throw over the third time and trying to create running. But it just doesn't benefit. The organizations are not going to let guys do it. And I've talked to a number of players, and this statistic war that's out there, wins above replacement, part of that is your base running. And if you get thrown out going first to third or thrown out still in a bag, it hurts your war. So I have players tell me all the time, I'm not running. Somebody's going to have to drive me in or hit one over the fence where I can jog because it hurts my war if I get uh, disqual- get thrown out on the bases. And that's just shameful. You know, it just changes the whole game of how uh, baseball should be a game you put pressure on the opponent, and I think that's what running does. Well, I think this you, – you touched on the, the new minor league rule they're going to try. I, I, who makes these rules up? It's like – it. <laughs> is there a baseball thought you give a real base stealer uh rules that they can only throw over three times you're laughing at that pitcher after he throws over twice you're going to get an extra step step and a half and imagine how that's going to affect the catcher in his stats you know when you got real exactly. base runners that are going to steal I, I mean it's like whoever's making these rules up never played a game and they're it's it's mind-boggling to me but you know whatever <laughs> That's why they don't well, have me making the rules. Yeah, um, no, I mean, you think that through a little bit. You're absolutely right. I mean, think about a left-hander, right? You get that big one-way lead, makes him throw over, throw over. I'll see you later, first movement. You know, so I don't know. I don't think they thought that one through very much. Okay, so let's skip to uh, 92, and and that's when I'm coming to the big leagues. I got – and you remember me back then, man. My hair is on fire. I, I'm, I'm just uh, <laughs> minor leaguer swinging hard. I just want to prove to everybody I can play. I got Harold Reynolds, one of the most popular players in Mariner history, in front of me. Uh, and I come to the big league, man. I and I went through this 13 years later, ironically, in Seattle with a young player named Jose Lopez, who was replacing me. And I remember coming up and I'm thinking, wow, this city loves Harold. You know, he's winning gold gloves and, and I'm just trying to play good. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm getting rid of all the, the side action, but you've been a big, big name in that city for a lot of years. What was that like for you? Uh, when I got called up to the big leagues and I remember we went into Bill Plummer, uh, his office and he kind of said, Hey, Brett's going to play X amount of games. Harold's going to play uh, X amount of games. What was that like for you? Kind of the change in the guard. Like I said, 
13 years later, I went through the same thing and Jose Lopez was replacing me. So he was getting some time at second base. You know, at that time in Seattle, for me, I kind of knew it was time for me to move on. Uh, How was that for you back in 92? Well, it was tough because, you know, I had become such a, uh, that was home for me because I grew up in the Northwest. I grew up about three hours away, but um, I mean, all I needed to see was watch you take BP. I was like, my time is limited here. <laughs> you were thundering balls. I'll never forget being in Boston and you were hitting balls in the, in the right field bullpen out there. I'm like, this kid is going to be ridiculous. But I think, you know, we all know when it's our time to come comes and it's also time to move on. I had hoped that they would trade me and get the chance to be in a playoff run and be with a contender. And I know there was a lot of talk. The Red Sox were looking at me and some other teams, but I think what happened because I was so popular in the community and did so many things, it put the organization in a spot where they couldn't, they didn't feel like they could move me because then it frowned bad on them. And so I think they just let the clock run out and I became a free agent and, and you were the next guy up, but it was a different time, Booney. I mean, I hope that players, I hope that players still do like we did. Like I was taught Julio Cruz had me in spring training. He taught me how to break in my glove. Here's the bat you need to try. He talked to me about situations and you know, you took ground balls. I'd sit there and talk to you and watch you turn pivots and different things like that. And, and you did that your whole career with the other young players. So I, I, I would hope that, you know, it, it passes on. That's what we're supposed to do. And so that's kind of how I viewed it. It was my time to pass it on, and it was going to be you taking over. Did I like it? No, but, you know, hey, it was time to go. Right, and, and you know, I did, and, and I remembered back to those days. I remember uh, you and myself going to uh, UW, UW Wash, uh, football game. And, yeah. you know, for me, it's kind of like everybody loves Harold. They don't know who the hell this Brett Boone guy is, but I'm, I just want to play. I don't care who's ahead of me. I just want to prove that I belong here. Uh, but you're right. It is. It had to be a tough time for you at, at that particular time. And I just remember uh, just wanting to play fast forward, yeah. you know, yeah. Jose, Jose Lopez. And, and at that. the time. At the time, I had had a pretty good run in Seattle, you know, and I was real popular in the city, but but kind of the writing was on the wall for me, and I didn't know how much longer I was going to play, but I knew kind of my Seattle days were coming to an end. Edgar was gone, and, and Johnny Olerud was gone, and Danny Wilson, and, and they were going younger, and, and it was just obvious to me, and I did the best job I could for this for this young player to kind of teach him the ropes to go, you know, I'm probably moving on now. So this is going to be your spot for as, as long as you make it your spot. But uh, yeah, it's, it's good lessons. And I agree with you. I think players uh, today, I, I think it benefits the game. I, I think it benefits everybody is when your time's up, Hey, help the next guy coming along because he's going to one day, he's going to help another guy. So I, I think that's a good lesson uh, for the guys in the game today. No doubt. No doubt about it. So you move on to Baltimore. You played a little bit with the Angels. You retire after the 94 season. And I want to talk a little bit about your second career. Now you've been at it for about 26 years. Did that just happen or or was this something you were thinking about uh, at the end of your playing career? Getting into the the other side of the mic. Uh, it, It just happened. Actually, the funny thing is the Arizona Diamondbacks were coming in as an organization. And Roland Eamon who was my general manager in Baltimore in 93, 
Um, he had always, uh, in, in 90, yeah, 93, he was my GM and he had always told me, man, the stuff you do in the community, I love to, when you're done playing sometime, whatever organization I'm with, I want to bring you with me. So he was the president of the new founding forming Arizona Diamondbacks. And I'd gone at the Super Bowl down there and Roland's like, Hey, if you don't get a chance to play, you need to come work for uh, the, the Diamondbacks here. So I didn't get any offers. And so sure enough, I went to go play with the Diamondbacks. I mean, work out, uh, work for the Diamondbacks in community affairs. And while I was uh, doing that, Jerry Colangelo says, hey, Fox is starting a new baseball show that they're going to do in 96. You should go over and audition. I'll set it up. It'll be good for the Diamondbacks. And you get over there and go do that audition. So I went over to do the Fox thing. And before you know it, uh, word gets out. I get a call from ESPN. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm on a flight to Bristol to go audition for them. And when I walked out of the audition, they gave me a, a three-year contract. I'm like, well, I guess this is what I'm doing. That's how it happened. How was that transition? And you were so uh, shortly removed from the field. Was that awkward? Because all of a sudden you're in the booth and now you got to comment on your teammates, your peers, uh, guys that you played with. You, you ever have anybody call up and say, Harry, you're killing me up there. <laughs> uh, I've only had a couple different uh, situations, so to speak, where somebody said something to me like that. But um, Brian Jordan, he was playing a game in Montreal and he slipped on the base. And I said, well, that's what happens when you wear rubber cleats. Because it was AstroTurf at the time. I didn't know he had cleats on. And he, he just was furious with me the next day. Like, I'm not just that curious to just be out there with rubber cleats on. And I'm like, wow, okay. All right, excuse me. But he went off on me. And uh, Jim Abbott on another thing one time, he went off on me on, on, on the point. I said he should have been in a position backing up a throw. That was it. You know, other than that, nobody's really said a lot. But um, I always said I'm, I'm not going to ruin friendships over talking about a baseball game. I just try to teach it. And I, I'd hope that, you know, guys would realize they made a mistake or should have been in a certain position or whatnot, and maybe they weren't. And that's it. That's all I tried to do. Uh, so in, in 2008, MLB uh, Network launches – 2009 you're you're part of the original crew there and you're gonna they're gonna go with a 24-hour baseball dedicated never been done before tell me about that it was exciting um excuse me tony petiti had come from from cbs sports and abc and all that and his vision that he shared with me is what you see on tv today he helped really revamp march madness where we used to watch these games in March Madison, the score might be, you know, 85, 50, and we'd have to keep watching it. And, you know, in the last 10 years or so, CBS now with TNT and everybody else, they'll, they'll flip you to the main game. That's like 10 seconds left, and it's one-point game. They'll take you to that and show the whole country. Well, that was Tony Petiti that started doing that. And that was his plan at MLB Network was to do these live look-ins, keep the game moving. If Mike Trout's at the plate, I want to see him. Poppy's at the plate, we go see him. You know, Brett Boone's up there with the bases loaded. We're going to go watch that at bat. 
and that was kind of the premise and the foundation of what he wanted to do at, at MLB Network. And so I was like, this is going to be amazing. And so it has really superseded our expectations. We had an idea what we wanted to do, but it's continued to grow. And, and uh, now it's part of the fabric of the culture, as they would say. What do you like most about your job? I think just being able to hang out and talk about baseball. You know, that's the fun part. I feel like I'm, I'm talking to and teaching 30 different teams. I don't know if I could have done just one team and been a broadcaster for one network. That would have been for one uh, organization. That would be hard to do. But to have 30 different teams, seeing the young players come in through the draft and the veteran guys playing in the big leagues, uh, that's, that's the best scenario of all. Seen it as a player, and you see it through a different lens over the last 26 years as an analyst. What's the biggest change you see in the game today? Uh, it's not even recognizable to when we played. I mean, that's how different it is. Uh, to see guys play on half the diamond, uh, the, the shift has been a mind-blowing experience for a former player. Because we're always taught hit it where they're not, right? Hit it where they ain't, so to speak. And to see the shift where guys come up and they're playing with half the field. And the, the most alarming thing to me is when you have runners in scoring position and you still don't want to drive the runs in by shooting it through a, an open hole. It's just mind-boggling to me, and that's just a total different game. But uh, it's not only the players, but it's the front offices, how they see the game played as well. So that, to me, is the biggest change at any time in the history of the game. Uh, those are, those, that, that's a big, big visual. And then there's a lot of other things uh, that you may not see, but that's the one, the, the big visual effect that changed that I see. All right, little rapid fire. Best pitcher you ever faced as a player? Um, Dave Stewart was the toughest guy for me. He had that, I guess it's a palm ball, but I thought it was a split at the time. He, he was the toughest guy for me to hit. Best pitcher today. I, I usually would say Garrett Cole, but Jacob DeGrom has really come up the ladder watching this guy with his arsenal and his dominance. I would, I would have to say it's one of those two guys right now. He is unbelievable. I was just watching him the other day, and I'm going, this guy, he might be at a different level than even Cole. And I, and I always refer to Cole as, you know, best pitcher in the world. I'm watching DeGrom the other day, just in a spring game, and I'm going, it's like he's at a little bit of a higher level than the best of the best. It is amazing. All right, I'm getting off yeah. track. Best, hit, uh, best hitter you ever saw as a player? Uh, it had to be Griffey or Bonds. Uh, those, those two are the best I've ever seen. Best hitter today? Um, Mike Trout. Yeah. He, he, can, uh, he, he does, I don't he does everything. Go wrong with that. Harold uh, Reynolds. Yes. Sir. All your years in the game, what are you most proud of? Uh, probably, probably the, um, the community stuff that I did. And um, I tell you, just – just playing in the big leagues is, is I think people overlook the fact of how difficult that is to do. And to be able to play there for a long period of time is, is a great accomplishment. All right. Well, Harry, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you coming on. Uh, 
longtime friend. We've been through a lot together, done a lot of interviews together, but but this was really cool, and I appreciate it. What we do on the Boone Podcast at the end is we bring the voice of the Boone Podcast, Dan Levy, back for a question from the fans. Dano? Hello, fellas. Mr. Reynolds, how are you? Yes, sir. What's up, Dan? All right. Here's the questions from the fans, and it's going to be one in particular. This is from Sarah in Naperville. What types of advice do you have to give to future athletes that are going to actually transition into broadcasting? People that are coming from the game itself to actually going towards that next level of trying to become a broadcaster and try to take over that space. Well, I think the biggest thing, um, when I look back on my transition to the booth, was doing interviews and doing a lot of uh, guest speaking. That helped an awful lot. Um, So I would say even now while you're playing, they have access to so many mediums that we didn't have, whether it was Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. But I think the, the biggest thing uh, when I look at, at, at the modern athlete today is just get out and speak. Get out and, and put your words together, your sentences, and figure out what all you can, you can do and how to express the, and explain the game. All right, and you actually have a bonus question, believe it or not. This, okay. one, this one comes from Phil in Sacramento. What was your famous moment the first time someone really famous from outside recognized you for your TV work and wanted, you, and wanted to meet you? Yeah, it's funny. I was doing uh, video games uh, for like EA Sports, and I was walking in the airport talking with some people, and a kid comes up and says, you're, you're the guy in the video game. I recognize your voice. I was like, recognize my voice? I hadn't heard that one before. So that became that was that was interesting, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> well, Harold Reynolds, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We really appreciate it. No, it's awesome. Thanks for having me. Anything for Booney, he knows that. Mailbag. All right, Boone, you know that sound. It is time for the Brett Boone Mailbag. We went ahead and fished out comments from Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all those that sent him questions at at the Boone 29. And let's go and dig in from the bag, shall we? Let's do it. All right, Brett, this one comes from Brian in Riverside, and he wants to know this one. You had Bauer on the Boone podcast before he signed with L.A. What's it like to walk into a new clubhouse as a high-priced free agent, and what's it like for a team when you add someone like him for the rest of the pitching staff who might now lose playing time to this new player? Brian, interesting question. I've never, uh, I never signed a free agent contract with a new team, uh, so I was a current member when I signed mine. Um, I don't think you really worry about uh, the team as a whole is not going to worry about losing playing time. Uh, when a big time free agent signed, it's kind of, it's kind of obvious that that's the guy. So whoever was the guy before, uh, he's usually gone or, or has a different role. So the roles are already you know, revealed before he walks in, but usually it's an exciting time. You know, when you get a big time free agent, you sign him. Man, that's kind of a, a you know another storyline going into spring training, and, and there's nothing but optimism. Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. All right, and now for the final question. All right, Brett, this one comes from Jimmy in Orlando. Brett, what's all that stuff in the on-deck circle that hitters use when they're getting ready to hit it? It's kind of like a donut, pine tar, rosin mishmash. What does all that stuff do? 
Well, the, the pine tar has kind of been around as long as the game has been around. And it's a substance that's made uh, from a bunch of different materials. I've never made one up myself, but there is an art to, to making it to have the perfect amount of stickiness, tackiness. Uh, the one we use modern day is called a Manny Mota stick. He kind of made it famous, just a stick that, that most of the players really like. And you don't have to mix up any formulas or anything. Rest is just weighted bat, light bat, donut, uh, whatever you prefer on deck. You know, it's it's probably comparable to to when you see a tour player go out into the range and they've got a bunch of different things they warm up with. One might have a, a stick with an orange ball on the end waiting for it, you know developing their tempo but it's just a bunch of different training devices whatever each individual feels comfortable with on deck getting ready to go into the box all right well that is going to do it for the brett boone mailbag thanks to all those again who submitted questions via twitter facebook instagram and of course you can get at brett boone by simply heading to his twitter at the boone 29 toss all the questions over there and we'll uh, pick them up one by one all right, that's going to do it for the podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I am the technical director, producer, and the voice of this here Boone podcast. The executive producer of the Boone podcast is Rich Herrera. Digital content all handled by the one, the only Liz Landry. And once again, we do ask that you please share the Boone podcast with neighbors, friends, and all those who love baseball. Make sure that you subscribe to the Boone podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boob Podcast, my name is Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. See ya.